It has been 50 years, five decades. Is that long enough to tell? What is telling about this Endangered Species Act? Congress enacted it those many years ago. There have been some big victories, I think, for wildlife in that time. And a lot of people are on board with that, most notably the bald eagle recovery. But by some accounts, too, the ESA has been a struggling program where only 3% of species ever reach recovery. Going to take a good hard look at that today and the, and the pluses and minuses of the 50-year-old program and then gauge what it can do into the future. We're lucky to have Jonathan Wood alongside here, Vice President of Policy and Law for PERC, the Property and Environment Research Center that's based out of Bozeman. Going to join us today here in just a bit for this important and timely discussion on Voices O Montana. It's time for the fastest hour in radio from Montana for Montana, Voices of Montana with Tom Schultz. Call in today at 866-627-5483 or text a comment or question to 781-627-5483. Now here's your host, Tommy Schultz. Thank you, Cody from the Badlands. We have Johnny from Wales and Cody from the Badlands. And and uh, uh, Cody gave a, uh, uh, I, I didn't think it was a bad British impression the other day. Uh, I, I was taken to the shed by, yep, yep, by Johnny. Yep, the real, the real Brit, the real uh, Welshman said no no don't do that anymore so uh. <laughs> all right 50 years uh, of the endangered species act and as i had said earlier you go to any website or any search if you want to kind of read a story about the endangered species act at 50 uh, you'll get a ton of listings uh, a lot of them are going to lean left about uh, and the by the numbers it's a huge success but there are those out there who say by the numbers it is not a huge success, and in fact, there is a failure to recover. Um, and and let's 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 dig into the pluses and minuses. What is the facts be uh, and the data behind this? How has the Endangered Species Act? Um, how have we treated it, and how has it treated us and our wildlife? Jonathan Wood, Vice President of Law and Policy from Perk Perk That's the Public and uh, Pardon Me uh, Property and Environment Research Center based out of Bozeman. Jonathan, good to have you back on. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Testified in Congress not that long ago. Uh, of course, uh, this is an area that, that you have probably over the years, your mind must be blown uh, because of all that it contains regarding our Endangered Species Act. <laughs> and there's a lot to it. But if you want to start somewhere, um, lack of recovery, or what's the truth about it? Because like I say, I see I see good reporting and I see less positive reporting on it. What's, what's the truth about it? Yeah, so last week, the Endangered Species Act officially turned 50. So we've got 50 years, a half century of experience under the law. And it's been heralded as a success, which is only, unfortunately, only partially true. Um, so what you'll often see if you've read any of the stories about the, the anniversary is that 99% of listed species remain around. So we've essentially prevented extinction um, under the act, which is critically important, definitely something we're celebrating. But what it misses is that the ESA sets a much more ambitious goal. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a federal agency that administers the act, has acknowledged that the ultimate goal of the statute is to recover species so that they're no longer endangered and threatened. You'll often hear the ESA analogized to an emergency room. What makes an, an emergency room an emergency room is that they treat patients and get them out as opposed to just keeping patients there forever. And that's really where we've fallen short. Over the last 50 years, only 3% of listed species have recovered and come off the list. That is way below what is possible. About a decade ago, the Fish and Wildlife Service provided estimated recovery dates for three, a bunch of species. And it predicted that 300 species would recover by now. Of those, only 13 did. 
We're also not on the precipice of a giant increase in the number of species that have recovered. The Fish and Wildlife Service estimates that only 4% of listed species are even improving and on the road to recovery. Essentially, what we have is a system where species get on the list, they're protected from extinction, but they're left on the precipice of extinction forever. And we've got to do better. Ultimately, the, the only way for the statute to work is we fix it so that we're finally starting to recover species that are coming off the list. And many of the conflicts that we see over so many species can go away. What? And I know you you, you try to explain that. And you, it was part of your testimony in Congress here in in July. But um, what explains this? Why um, uh, those numbers are not satisfactory? There's a large group, I, I suppose, that is satisfied with that. I, I don't know. But what's the reason behind all these things? Yeah, I don't think anyone's satisfied with a 3% recovery no. rate. Um, I think two issues probably explain why you don't get more attention for that. One is the Endangered Species Act is incredibly polarized and politicized. It has been a source of political conflict for now 50 years over the costs that it imposes and the regulations that it imposes. And so supporters of the act are wary of any sort of criticism and what sort of reforms that might or changes the act that might open up. At the same time, critics of the act often go too far and seem to be arguing something to the effect that it's not worth the cost of recovering species, which obviously um, puts off a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The other explanations, I, I think, um, go more to the um, the specifics of like particular species that – you know, I'm talking about the overall trends, but if you only care about one species, you're going to miss those. And, and a lot of people, their interaction with the Endangered Species Act is, is species specific. They care about the grizzly bear or the wolf or, you know, whatever species is in their backyard that affects them the most. Why is it so polarized? Because I feel like everybody would have some sort of sentiment toward stewardship and, and the responsibility we have toward stewardship. Why has it become so polarized? Because of the how. Um, so your, your intuition is exactly right. Surveys show that there is overwhelming support for the purpose of the act. If you sort of step back from the actual law and how it works and just ask people, should we conserve and recover endangered and threatened species, regardless of political party, whether you live in urban areas or rural areas, the numbers are off the charts. It's like 90% plus support for that as a policy goal. The problem is really in how we do it. Um, conserving and recovering species is something that everyone in society wants, and you would expect everyone in society should be willing to pay for. And unfortunately, that's not the way it's worked. The ESA imposes incredibly burdensome regulations on private landowners who happen to have endangered species or their habitats on their private land, um, which creates really terrible incentives. So if you're a landowner, you view an endangered or threatened species or habitat as a liability. You're just waiting for the hammer to fall and you to face those consequences. And what we really need is to make these species and the habitats an asset. So landowners are better off if they invest in conserving species and recovering them and that's really the only way we're going to fix the recovery rate. Recovering species doesn't happen by leaving them alone. It happens by proactively investing in habitat restoration, hab lack of habitat being the biggest threat to most species, and other proactive efforts to recover them. And that's what we're not seeing because all of the incentives are wrong. Ah. And, and lack of habitat is a, is a huge part of this as well. Here's an issue that has concerned me and when you talk about having buy-in with, with private property owners. If they keep moving the goalpost like they're doing with grizzly recovery, like they've done with the wolf recovery and probably other species as well, uh, maybe you could 
comment on that. But if, if they keep moving the goalposts on these things, they're not going to get buy-in from the private property owners that, what, what was it, two-thirds of endangered species are, are on private property lands? That's right. Uh, the vast majority depend on private land. Many of them depend on private land for most of their habitat. Private landowners really are the key partner to make the Endangered Species Act work, and they have not been treated that way. And part of the problem is exactly what you've identified, the moving the goalposts. So the, under the ESA, the Fish and Wildlife Service has to create a recovery plan for species, which will identify metrics for determining whether it's recovered. In the case of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem Grizzly, they did this and set a recovery target of 500 bears as well as a few other um, criteria. The problem is that the ESA doesn't give any significance whatsoever to those targets. So meeting them doesn't mean that you delist the species. Not meeting them doesn't mean that you can't delist the species. They're sort of just treated as things that are out there in the ether but don't have any meaningful impact. But obviously that's not how landowners or states see them. They see, finally, we have a target, something to work for. And when they invest in it, they expect to get some reward. And unfortunately, largely for reasons outside the Fish and Wildlife Service or the federal government's control, more to do with litigation in the courts, they haven't been able to you know, meet their side of that bargain. So right now, the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem Grizzlies is well over a thousand bears, double the recovery goal for that population. They're spilling out into areas that bears haven't been seen in 100 years. Now, that is great from a conservation perspective, but it's a big challenge for management. And if the species remains listed, the state's hands are essentially tied to deal with a lot of the conflicts that are resulting from a bear, a population that was really struggling, but today is abundant. And so what recourse is there? As you noted, the states are often, their hands are tied. In fact, a lot of people's hands are tied over these things. And I don't know how you can work with your hands being tied. What's What kind of recourse is there for the current ESA? Yeah, and I would add that often it's the Fish and Wildlife Service's hands too yeah. that are tied. They have tried to list, delist and declare the the Great Yellowstone Ecosystem Grizzlies recovered for decades, and every time they have been sued and courts have blocked it. So this isn't something like they're they're facing the same sort of frustrations and conflicts that private landowners and states are. Um, the good news is there's a lot we can do to fix some of these problems by leaning into better incentives for states and landowners to invest in recovery efforts and to reduce incentives for litigation. And both of those are, are really key. And so one of the ideas that PERC has championed is to change the way we regulate threatened species to provide stronger incentives and basically create an off-ramp towards recovery and delisting. Historically, the the way the the federal government has operated is it treats all species that are listed the same, regardless of whether they're critically endangered, you're down to the last 50 and they could go extinct any minute, to threatened species that, like the grizzly bear, there may be hundreds. You know, they face some risk, but it's not the same type of risk as an endangered species. But they treat these species the same. The problem with that is if you're a landowner or a state that has an endangered species, what incentive do you have to work towards its recovery? Even if you make really big investments and the species improves and is upgraded to threatened, nothing changes. It's still going to be regulated the exact same way, and you're going to face the exact same burdens. So what we've proposed is instead the Fish and Wildlife Service should immediately lower the regulation, regulatory op- uh, burdens imposed for threatened species and then provide that they will step down further as the species gets closer to recovery. For, so for the grizzly bear, you know, when the species were originally around 200, they might have said, okay, we're going to lower it to this. This is what, how we're going to regulate you. But when it gets to 300, we're going to give a little bit more authority to the state. When it gets to 400, we're going to give a little bit more. And when it's 500, we're basically going to hand over management to the state. 
that would have been tremendous to provide incentives for recovery while also providing a logical transition of authority back to states and private landowners. And by doing so, it would have reduced litigation. Really, the reason why we have litigation is there are a lot of environmental groups that fundamentally distrust states to manage species. Mm. And it's because under the current approach to the ESA, you basically go from absolute full federal control to full state control overnight. Uh-huh. There's no opportunity for states to show those environmental groups that, no, you can trust us. We can manage the species. Any more gradual sort of off-ramp towards the listing would provide that. And that can absolutely happen today without any change to the statute. It's just It just requires the service to use it. Ah, I mean, that's super interesting. Uh, we, I got like a minute here before I got a hard breakup coming. Jonathan Wood, Vice President of Law and Policy from the Property and Environment Research Center. You'll see his writings in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, National Review, all over the place. Uh, reason and um, uh, his, his research and, and writings are also available at PERC. It's some really good stuff there, Jonathan. Um uh, if you've got like a 30 second answer to this, or at least a tease, how important would it be to reconsider uh, the economic impact of species recovery in the Endangered Species Act? It is absolutely essential and not just because it would make the cost lower. It would actually contribute to the recovery because the costs you impose on landowners are the disincentives against recovery efforts. The fastest hour in Montana radio continues. Call 866 866- Six two seven five four eight three, and join Montana's statewide radio talk show, Voices of Montana, with Tom Schultz. Welcome alongside. I hope you're doing well. We're two decades strong and working on three from Montana for Montana. Jonathan Wood is with us again, Vice President of Law and Policy with the Property and Environment Research Center, perk.org. That's based out of Bozeman. Uh, Jonathan's an attorney, but litigated environmental and property rights cases in the Supreme Court. And as I mentioned, uh, just one of our our nation's leading experts on this topic, specifically the Endangered Species Act. And he gets to live in Bozeman. Uh, So you're you're okay with that too, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks again for being here. Tell tell us about PERC a little bit, because I've noted here, I think you guys do a lot of great data stuff, and and your presentation seems to be pretty uh, common sense and logical. I don't know if you get the credit for the work you guys are doing that you deserve. Well, thank you. That's very kind. So the Property Environment Research Center is a 40-year-old conservation organization based in Bozeman. Um, Our core is research, and for most of our history, we've been a research-only institution, um, but over the last 10 years or so, we've gotten much more involved in law and policy. So to take some of the lessons from our research and apply it in the real world um, and also doing applied projects. So we've done a ton of work in Paradise Valley with the ranchers there to make sure that we keep working lands working and, and conserve the habitat for elk and lots of other species coming out of Yellowstone. And what makes us different from most other environmental and conservation organizations is that we sort of approach it from an economic lens. We were founded by economists. It's, it's sort of a core of our approach. And we think of conservation not as something you impose on people, but something you empower them to do through better incentives. So just issuing a regulation to us doesn't do anything unless you can be sure that it's creating incentives to restore habitat, improve water quality, or do all the proactive things that you need to produce better environmental outcomes. Like we're less interested in regulation and more interested in what does this mean for people on the ground? Are we really creating the incentives necessary for environmental improvement? Or we're just issuing regulations so we feel better without thinking about what are all the unintended consequences. And the Endangered Species Act is a perfect example of that. Having regulations for species makes everyone feel good 
Um, but people don't think about what does this mean for the landowner who's deciding, do I invest in habitat restoration or not? And if the ESA punishes them for invest- that investment, they're not going to do it. As you noted, um, uh, your, your your roots are based on economics. The question that we posed kind of going into the break there is because the Endangered Species Act specifically does not allow the consideration of the economic impact of species recovery. And I get that from an idealistic standpoint, but practically uh, it, it has not been to the benefit of society and thus the species as well. Your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, there's one place in which it is appropriate to ignore economics, and that's the scientific question of, is this species in danger or threatened? And actually, that is the only part of the ESA that ignores economics. All of the regulatory decisions are supposed to consider the cost imposed on states and landowners. It's explicit in most of the statute, in part because Congress reacted to an early Supreme Court decision which suggested you have to ignore costs and basically overruled the court and amended the statute to add all these considerations of costs. But it's actually more than just, you know, are are the costs too high or or too low? Um, It matters a lot for conservation. That's really the way PERC approaches it. As I said, we're a conservation organization, not a, you know, general you know, anti-regulatory or regulatory organizations concerned about cost. The reason why we focus on costs is because if you make a species or its habitat a liability for a landowner, you're going to alienate that landowner and ensure that they don't do the things necessary to recover the species. A couple of years ago, I litigated a case in the Supreme Court that's a perfect example of this. I represented a landowner who had their private land designated as critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog, one of the most critically endangered amphibians in the country. But he didn't have any frogs on his property. His property wasn't even suitable for the frog. The only way it would benefit the frog is if he completely changed the property to build a bunch of habitat and then reintroduce frogs. Something that would cost a ton of money. And instead of providing him an incentive to do that, the service designated his land as critical habitat and in its own estimation reduced the value of that land by millions of dollars. Well, that just gets the incentives back. It's like, why would you penalize somebody that you're hoping might be a partner with you down the road? That just fundamentally does not make sense. And unfortunately, that is too often exactly what happens under Endangered Species Act regulation. I have to talk about habitat um, and, and, and sage grouse, wolverine, the lynx, when they want to propose endangered species for like the lynx in particular, its habitat range goes for, I don't know, thousands of square miles. I don't know what there, what kind of solution there is in that, but can we kind of s- somehow separate that and focus on the species recovery without having to say over a thousand square miles? Uh, it's a good question, and obviously it will depend on the species. Some species need a lot more habitat than others. Um, I mean, my favorite example is the monarch butterfly. You can't save and recover that species by focusing on one area; it has to migrate. Um, other species are, you know, more localized, and you can do a smaller area. But again, the key point is not so much are we designating a big area or small area, it's are we doing the things necessary to provide incentives to conserve and restore habitat? That really is such the key in whether or not we recover species. And too often that's not what we're doing. We're doing something closer to the opposite. You mentioned public land where the Canada lynx are and a lot of other um, species here in Montana. Often the way the Endangered Species Act interacts with uh, public or federal land in the West and in Montana is to restrict um, timber management and prescribed fire and all the other tools that the Forest Service needs to maintain habitat. And so over the last decade plus, what we've seen is that Endangered Species Act litigation regulations 
are an obstacle to managing our forests appropriately, and the consequences have been more and bigger fires and habitat lost potentially forever that could have been conserved and improved if only the agency had had the ability to act rather than having to just simply wait and litigate and go through the regulatory morass. Jonathan Wood, again, uh, with us, Vice President of Law and Policy from the uh, Property and Environment Research Center. And um, Let's keep in this vein of public lands here, Jonathan. Uh, I think a lot of people are on high alert about so-called land grabs, um, seizing private land, some would say is the next step in in a climate change battle. Um, I've been looking at this. I haven't read enough of it to really comment on it, but the Gallatin County has a uh, a Gallatin County uh, or uh, a sensitive lands plan is what it's Gallatin Valley sensitive lands protection plan. It's 200 pages long. Um, and, and I wonder, <laughs> are they hiding something in there? Because good, let's study, let's find out what our sensitive lands are. But in this document, are there regulations or restrictions over private property rights and something like that? Dude, it seems like we have to be super, super vigilant lately about um, making our public lands truly public. Uh, you're exactly right. And one of the frustrating things about a lot of the process by which we issue environmental regulations is that the things that we often talk about as being about public input and public participation are made impossible for the public to actually participate. You mentioned the sensitive lands protection plan, how long that document is, how impossible it is to imagine that most of the people that may be affected by it will ever have the opportunity to read it and understand it and to engage this is not unique to that. I, you know, I mentioned how uh, the Forest Service struggles to manage and restore forests. Part of the, the big problem is that they're being sued and forced to write ever more complex and longer environmental studies about the impacts of management, all of which at the end of the day say we need to be more active in restoring our forests, um, but just give lie to the idea that this is about increasing public input and public understanding because the public never has an opportunity and simply can't read 5,000 pages worth of environmental studies about a project that ultimately is just about, you know, do we protect Bozeman's water supply or do we ensure this area doesn't burn in a catastrophic fire? Like the public could get it if we simplified the process and made it a lot easier to understand, but that's not the incentive that mostly litigation groups, but, but some others have to try to make the process so complex that only they can participate. And that leads to the question I ask a lot of people when we talk about public lands. What's the will in Congress? What's the will? um, You know, I I feel that the environmental community is splitting a little bit on these issues, some taking a real, real hard approach on on it. Others are, are, I think, acquiescing to a a little more of a, a public approach on it. What is the will to change the ESA? And you've got some suggestions for that as well. I'm optimistic. Um, I think, especially now that the Endangered Species Act has been in place for 50 years, what I've heard throughout my career is we can't consider any sort of reforms or improvements because we just need to give it more time. After 50 years, like we've, we've had enough time. The results are in, and it's pretty clear we need better incentives to recover species. I think that's really the key, though. Historically, the fights over the Endangered Species Act in Congress have been about cost versus conservation. And the reality is those two things are related. And I'm, I'm happy to see more members of Congress that are interested in improving the ESA talk about it from a recovery perspective. We want species to recover so that we have them going forward, but also so that the landowners that are un- facing unfair burdens today can stop facing those burdens. And that, to me, is a much more productive way forward. 
And you're seeing that for a lot of other issues. So I'm also very optimistic about force management, where you're seeing the Biden administration and a lot of environmental groups and members of Congress recognizing that doing nothing is no longer a viable option. If we do that, our forests are going to burn, our habitat's going to be lost, species and communities are going to suffer. And so everyone has to come to the table because of that fact and, and consider what can actually be done to produce the sort of results that virtually everybody wants. Will they come to the table with a hard line or will they come to table with open minds? So far, open minds. Um, we've seen a lot of movement towards reforms to address some of the regulatory obstacles on forests. The Biden administration has put out plans to aggressively increase the amount of forest restoration work that they've done. And they've been using some of the tools that Congress has given them to make that process happen quicker. The Endangered Species Act is tougher. Um, it's been much more politicized that people are, have entrenched positions. So we're probably not going to see anything happen in the short term. But in the long term, you know, we can't, we can't continue to have 3% of species recovering and pretending that's okay. Right, yeah, um, and, and, and then uh, trying to hide that fact too. Well, in, in, and frankly, you can't hide that fact. It's <laughs> like one of those numbers that there's really no argument about it. There's no alternative view that says, oh, actually, no, the recovery rate is 10%. Like every, this is basic numbers and arithmetic everyone gets. It's 3%. And the longer we go with that, the more species are going to go extinct. Because when you leave species on the precipice, they remain vulnerable. Um, I mentioned the dusk for frog earlier. Right now, it exists in only a couple of ponds in one area of um, Alabama. If a hurricane runs through that area or fire or some other thing that, that damages that habitat, that species could go away. And we don't want to see that. The only way to, to fix it is to expand that population, to grow more habitat, and provide more um, recovery efforts. And that's what takes change. Jonathan Wood, Vice President of Law and Policy, Property and Environment Research Center based out of Bozeman, org, And it's not impose, but empower. I really like that, uh, Jonathan. Uh, quickly, I'm sorry, we're kind of run out of time here, but delineate some of those uh, suggestions for us for improvement to the ESA. One is we've got to take recovery more seriously. Right now into the ESA, the agencies are required to prepare recovery plans for every species that I mentioned earlier. They have no legal impact whatsoever. So the agency treats them as an afterthought. They make all of the regulatory decisions that generate conflict well before they start thinking about what does it mean to recover these species? Who are the partners we need? We can fix that. We can make recovery planning the beginning of the process Mm -hmm. that informs all the regulatory decisions. And to her credit, the current Fish and Wildlife Service director, Martha Williams, has endorsed this idea in her own scholarship before she joined the agency. It doesn't make sense. To start thinking about what it means to recover species after you've alienated all of your potential partners. We've got the order backwards. So we can fix that pretty easily. It would take Congress, but we could do it. The second is to regulate. I mean, I discussed earlier how we should treat threatened species differently from endangered. And one of the ideas that PERC has pioneered and pushed for is to think about the regulation of threatened species as roadmaps to recovering. Jonathan Wood, I appreciate that. I apologize for cutting you off here. You're welcome back. We've got more to talk about. Thanks again for joining us for the podcast and join us daily Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. for more Voices of Montana on local stations all across Montana.